0: You're welcome to grab a Bible and flip to Philippians chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 27 to 30 this morning. We also have it for you in the Order of Worship, and you'll notice in the Order of Worship the title of this sermon is A Life Worthy of the Gospel, Part 1, but the unpublished or the bootleg title is The Godfather, Part 1, and that is because there's a scene, which is a famous scene in the movie The Godfather, which... Uh, if you have seen it, where Don Corleone, the godfather, Italian mob boss, he sits down with his son, Michael. And in just a few moments, he knows that his body is failing and that he doesn't know how long he's going to be able to be the head of this family much longer. And so he sits down with his son and he gives them a few instructions that are of a special importance to him when he takes over. And that's he wants them to be prepared for what's coming. He tells them that as soon as I'm gone, there's going to be a meeting set up um, from this guy named Barzini, and you're going to go under the flag of peace, and you'll be assassinated at that meeting. I know I've been in this conflict for a long time, um, and I know what's going to happen. And he tells him that he never wanted this for him, that he wanted it to be easier. He wanted him to have an easier life, but uh, the job isn't finished, and now it's up to him. It's up to Michael And that above all, he can't get careless. And if he does, the work that he has been laboring towards all along could possibly be in vain. And I use that as an introduction because we are at a pivotal moment here in this letter to the Philippians where Paul is writing to his spiritual children in this church of Philippi. And he has been talking about himself and how God has been moving in his life. Uh, He has been encouraging to the Philippians that even though he is in prison, that God has been on the move using it for good, but in not knowing how long he's going to last, then he is turning his letter into instructions for this church and telling them um, what is the most important thing that I want to leave you with and I want you to consider if I am gone so that you will be able to thrive when I'm gone. Except here, what Paul is warning them about is not Italian mobsters, but as persecution. And there are actually two threats here. I'm going to cover one this week and one next week, an external threat of persecution and an internal threat of infighting. And they are both very tightly related. Um, but, and this whole section of this next, even through chapter 2, is about this. But we're going to just pause on this first issue and talk about the theme of persecution for the faith of Christ this morning. And I do want to say right up front, this giving a little bit of an extended introduction here, but this is a very awkward subject to talk about, particularly in the Western world and in the United States especially. And it's hard because on the one hand, we could say we have none, uh, that we have freedom of worship and there's not outright political persecution of Christians for their faith. On the other hand, then... We hear some groups saying that we do, and who use different political happenings as evidence that Christ is being, Christians are being persecuted. And then we have other groups on another side who say that there is no persecution. This is just an unsettling of power from what happened before, and that you just need to get used to being like the rest of us. So that's confusing. And if I could add a third hand in here that Especially if you're a non-believer and you are watching this, um, this can sound like us versus them talk, and that's not what I want to happen. Um, And uh, it can be uh, a little bit, it's ripe ground to be misunderstood in that way as well. But it is also necessary that we talk about it. If this is confusing and if it's in the Bible, this is probably something we actually should lean into and talk about rather than keep to the side. And these are very interesting times, which you will relate with, whether you are a believer or not, and that there are very clear moral lines that are forming and have formed in culture that are reinforced, not politically, but by shame. And you feel this, and I feel this, whoever you are, that I, if you don't think this way, um, then you are the subject of shame. Uh, you are the subject of social isolation, ostracism ostracization or anything like that. This could be around views on gender or sexuality. Uh, This could be the accusation that if you're a Christian, you can't believe in science. Or this could be uh, the idea that Christianity itself is systematic, historic persecution of other views. And so to be considered one, um, that all, all you can have is shame. And so This is actually an important thing that we need to think of about and we need to talk about. So let's go to what Paul has to say here. Um, We'll go just read these four verses here and then we'll pick up from there. Paul says, starting in verse 27 of chapter 1, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, In order to hear what Paul is saying in here, then I want to focus on this first command. Everything else is unpacking that, where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And there's two questions we have to answer in order to understand this. First, what is the gospel? That's where we'll start. And second, uh, based on that, how then can you live a life uh, that is worthy of that gospel? So let's start, with the gospel? And I want to ask you a question. When you hear this phrase, only let your manner of life be worthy, what first comes to your mind? Like, it almost doesn't matter what word comes after that. Be worthy of what? Because when we think of worthy, we either think I'm doing great and whatever it is, then you know, I'm f- fulfilling the obligations and I'm worthy of this, or I'm not worthy. Like I've messed up in all these ways. There's no way that I can be worthy. It is always about us. And that's why we need to define what he means here. Like, what does Paul mean by the gospel? And there's a few things to, to note here. First, looking in our passage, of verse 27, where he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so gospel being good news in the first hand, it is good news that is not about us. It is not about how we are doing, it is not about the makeup of our lives, but it is about somebody else, and that person is Jesus. It is good news about the gift of Jesus who was sent on our behalf. It's good because Christ is actually holy enough and was obedient enough and persevered enough that he can stand in the presence of his Father without shame. And it's good news because Christ in his death and resurrection that we have been celebrating, that he finished the job completely, worthily of praise and honor. And so that Christ can be fully accepted, uh, fully enjoy the glory that is his um, as the Son of God. And in regards to us, who did he do that for? If we back up to seven, Paul is saying to this uh, church, as he has already said, that we are all Christians, fellow partakers of grace. And that is this gift of Christ that we are partakers of, it is to people who have unmerited it. It is by grace. So the fact that whether we feel worthy of it or not, it has nothing to do with our own worthiness. It has everything to do with Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf. But as a consequence of this, this means, it's in verse one six, that Paul is saying that means that it is Christ who began this work by grace, and it is Christ who will finish the work by grace. The good news of the gospel that we believe in is that we both come into the faith and we persevere in the faith by grace. It is not to be brought in and then to build upon what Christ has done. It is fully to be brought in by grace and to by grace rest on what he has done and his worthiness. But this has an application here in this passage, which is interesting and which is one that we often don't think about. If you'll look here in verse 128, he says, he encourages them to not be frightened in anything by your opponents, and this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that your salvation being from God. And that is if Christ is worthy enough And if he has been given as a gift, a pure gift to unworthy people, then it means salvation from whatever situation that we are in. It comes from God and not from us. And that is part of the good news that Paul is drawing uh, the Philippians' attention to. But there's another thing. Look at verse 129 if you have it. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And I want to ask you, have you ever seen a Philippians 129 bumper sticker? I have not. Maybe you didn't even know this verse was in the Bible. Or did you catch what he's saying? He's saying that it is a gift that we believe in Christ, but not only that, it is actually a gift to us that we would suffer for his sake. And how can that possibly Be good news. And what Paul is drawing our attention to is that this gospel that he is preaching means a total union with Christ and his worthiness, not our own, both in his death and resurrection and in his life. It means both in the afterlife and in this life. And so these sufferings, and we've been talking about this over the last few weeks that they are not just suffering in themselves, but they are actually means that God is accomplishing his work through in this world and means through which he is bringing honor and glory to his children. So Paul is saying that to be associated, this fellowship with Christ, this total union with Christ also extends to suffering and that suffering is like the suffering of Christ that we have also been united to. This is what Paul means by gospel. And this is something that we need to sit with for a little while and to consider. But what does that mean? So if we stop there, we might think that if Christ is worthy enough for us, then what does it mean to be worthy, to live a manner of life worthy of this? It's almost like it's saying that if Christ is worthy, we don't even need any more instructions because it doesn't matter what we do. It just matters uh, who he is. And does that nullify this command in the first place? And again here, if we dive into this, then it's far from that. And there's something very special uh, that he is calling us to. And that if you look at verse 27, where he gives this command, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You could translate this in a different way. And he's using a particular word in here that would have meant something if you were a Philippian. And it could be only let your citizenship be. Live your citizenship in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's using this word citizenship in order to make this point. And that is Philippi is a Roman colony and citizenship meant something very special. Citizenship to Rome, it meant something very special to them. It came with pride, it came with honor, and it came with privileges uh, to be part of a Roman citizen, part of the Roman Empire. Not just a province, but an actual citizen. And if you've talked to anybody outside the United States, you know that it's, that Americans are famous for priding themselves in American citizenship. Uh, Often annoyingly so. But it means to be an American citizen means that you are a benefit of a lot of advantages. Economic advantages, political advantages, uh, what, what, whatever that may be. And it's a source of pride. There's an identity uh, for many Americans in that. It's a very special thing. And we think that everybody should want to be an American citizen. Um, But the citizenship that Paul is actually talking about is not Roman and is certainly not American. He is talking about a citizenship that is in heaven. And that is, in effect, this command is to live in a way that is consistent with both the benefits of and the obligations of the citizenship that has been given through Christ, the citizenship of heaven. So in regards to the gospel, Paul is calling this Philippian church to live consistently with people who have been given a gift by grace, that they have not earned anything, but they have been given totally. They've had lavish gifts poured out on them because of Jesus. But with that, He has also given new wisdom. He has given new laws, the laws of love um, that have come from God and not from man. There are laws to this kingdom. He has given a purpose. There's a purpose to this kingdom. And this is, in effect, we are saying that in this, to be a citizen is that we are not just saved from something, but we are saved into something. We're saved into a new kind of kingdom. This is the full scope of the gospel, that we are actually to be molded by something in our life uh that is very uh thing of it great importance to us. So what does this look like in life? Uh one thing he lists here is it looks like unity together in spirit and in mind. This was kind of a rhetorical way of saying through and through every part of us almost as one soul to be unified in that way. And this I'm going to unpack specifically next week because it's so important and there's so much to say about it. Um but for now, it gives the, the sense of, of leaving nobody behind, of encouraging one another, of relating to one another out of grace and not out of a sense of competition. But it also means to engage in this missional purpose like Paul. You know, Paul was not out here just antagonizing the Roman Empire. Uh, he was actually very respectful of the Roman Empire, of the officials. Uh, he's there because of his conflict with, in prison, because of his conflict with the Jews, largely. However, whatever is happening, as he is behaving as a respectable citizen in the Roman Empire, he has a higher citizenship, and that is in heaven. And that he is proclaiming and living out this good news, no matter what that means, whether that means free uh, life or whether that means being put in prison. And to further clarify this, we could ask, you know, what, how does this relate more specifically, to persecution. And how does this relate to our lives and our moment in particular? And that is there is another citizenship, as I have been mentioning, other than the citizenship in heaven. And in Paul's day, uh, that was Roman citizenship. The thing about Rome is for most of its history, it did not have an anti-Christian agenda, other than certain circumstances where it did. How it functioned was uh, syncretism. That meant whatever your religion was, whatever your God was, you were allowed to worship them in the way uh, that you thought. You were able to believe in them in the way that you wanted. Only Caesar was above everybody else. So as long as you could separate your belief from your political life, you are free to move about the empire in peace. But there was also a cost of not participating in that way there was a cost of missing out on a lot of economic opportunity. And that a lot of the way economics functioned is they functioned with Caesar being the head of the empire, where trade uh, was through the Roman gods. So if you didn't participate in these means of life, that means that your economic life, even if you're not directly persecuted, was going to be less than those that did. And for the most part, you know, we can debate this as much as we want, but our situation right now, is not an explicitly anti-Christian agenda either. What it is, is there's is a social vision around us in which some of the core tenets of Christianity do not fit. And that particularly is that Christ is the king overall. And this is not just an issue of separating belief from political life. It is a radical union. He says that, we would, that you would not only believe but also that you would suffer for his sake, that we would live this out in a unified belief as full citizens, both in the afterlife, spiritually, and in reality as well. There's no such separation. And where this, the rub comes in for us, again, often not in a political sense, but in the realm of shame. And that is to use just the common example. You know, if Christ, we are saying, if Christ is the king that Christ is the king over our sexual satisfaction and that that is not our highest need and that is not our highest value, however much we feel it. And we have tremendous solidarity with every other person who feels desire and who is in many ways hypocritical about um, what we do and what we say. But yet this kingdom that we have been brought into is a kingdom of love that says pornography abuses people on both sides of the screen. It says fidelity in marriage is worth the cost of feeling unfulfilled. It says that the kind of satisfaction is permissible. It starts with God's design and not with our own. This is just the common example. And to not to adhere to those things brings shame in many circumstances. But it's not just that. It's not just the classic subjects. If we think about this economically, it means sacrificial giving, living a life sacrificially and giving to others, avoiding the materialism It could mean that we could miss out. It could mean that we don't have the same things, uh, the same luxuries that our neighbors do. And yet, that this is a good life. This is what citizens of this kingdom do. They give to each other. It could be that we could pick a career path of service rather than honor in a way that there's not going to be the same benefit uh, as there would. It could be offering forgiveness to somebody when all of your friends say that that is crazy and that should never be done. That would be wrong. It could be associating with the lowly, with the person who is unpopular and who doesn't, um, who is unpopular to spend time with. All of these things have to do not with waving a flag and trying to overthrow the empire and making sure everybody hears our agenda. It is a slow and is a steady process of living out as citizens of heaven, living out this gospel of grace and love poured out for other people rather than living for ourselves and despite whatever consequences that may mean. It may mean prosperity. It may mean not. It may mean sacrifice. But whatever it is, that this is what citizenship of heaven living in the world today looks like. And so at the end, what I want to leave you with, as challenging as these things are, that Paul is asking us, in a sense, to consider Christ. And he is going to do that very specifically when we get into chapter 2. He is asking us to consider what Christ did for us. He He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to hold on to, but he took on the form of a servant. He became obedient to the point of death, giving himself up for the sake of others. And through that, he was crowned by God with glory and honor. And this is not only the pattern of life that we're given with Christ. This is what Jesus did for you. So he is asking us to consider this love that was poured out on us through Jesus, what he did for us. And then as we face the situations that God has put us in, to ask, what is God like? What is he doing? What is his love? What is its nature? Is his presence with us? It is there because of Christ, and it looks like Jesus. And it is this love that is worth persevering in and for no matter what happens. Let's stop there and I'll pray for us. The Spirit would help us uh, to keep our eyes on Jesus and to live this out in real life. Father, this is a task that you have called us to that we cannot do on our own. We can only do it by grace. But out of grace, you have given us these promises that we don't have to be afraid but that you gave yourself up for us. And because of that, there is nothing, no good that you will not do for your children. So help us to hold on to that as you hold on to us much tighter than we will ever hold on to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.